Hi everyone, welcome back to TVP. This year is our 10th birthday, believe it or not. Not as a podcast, but as a value franchise here at Schroeder's. We wanted to celebrate this in the pod by having a sort of party with some of our longest standing clients and past podcast guests by inviting them in and flipping the table. Usually on the pod, we interview people from all walks of life on their expertise. But in this mini series called Meet the Manager, our guests and clients are going to interview us instead and finally ask those burning questions that have been brewing over the past 10 years. We'll be releasing this mini series on the off weeks from our regular content, which we'll publish as normal. But we hope you enjoyed this limited series where we place the value franchise in the interviewee seat as a birthday treat. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, and welcome back to our third episode in the Meet the Manager series. In this episode, Scott Spencer, a partner within the Columbia Threadneedle Multi-Manager Team, interviews fund manager Vera German. But about Scott, Scott has over 20 years experience in researching funds. Before joining BMO Threadneedle, he did turns at Aberdeen and Credit Suisse. Scott manages the daily activity of the funds in addition to his broader fund selection role. He leads the sector research teams for the US, Asia, and emerging markets, and is also a member of the specialist investments team. In this episode, he interviews Vera, who joined Schroeder's in 2018 from Bailey Gifford. That in itself is where we start as Bailey Gifford is one of the best known growth shops in the UK, and for Vera to join the value team is exemplary of the, sometimes quoted as Warren Buffett's line, you are not made into a value investor, you are born a value investor. Scott and Vera will discuss Vera's journey into becoming a value investor, literature and legendary value investors who had an influence on her and shaped her investment style international value investing and a focus on emerging markets, and how she thinks of macro in the context of investing in value investing. Enjoy. Esty again, Vera. Hope you're well. Quite interested in your path to value investing. I mean, you came from it from a, a different type of approach. So maybe talk a little bit about kind of your background and how you found value investing suited you as a, as a style. Sure, that's a, that's a great question, I think, um, and really goes to the heart of the fact that I think investing can be a very personal thing. And when you find an approach that you like the most, that fits your personality, that fits with the, your view of the world, it can become quite a powerful thing because it makes you enjoy, enjoy your job so much more. I started uh, my investing career in Bailey Gifford, which uh, for those on the pod who don't know, is not exactly a value shop. In fact, mm-hmm. it is the exact opposite of a value shop. And the first few years, I was just learning the ropes. I was doing CFA exams. I was trying to get to the bottom of what investing actually is. And as time went by, I realized that there is a pattern to the kind of cases that I'm attracted to. And those were typically more contrarian, more struggling companies, uh, companies that others weren't interested in looking at. And there was something about this this ability, this possibility of going against the opinion of the market that I found very interesting. And I was very lucky in that the organization, despite not really embracing value as a style for their own investors, 
there was a very strong desire to mentor people and to help them develop whichever way was best for them. So I had some incredible mentors and one of them in particular recommended a book to me by Peter Kandel. Uh, the book, I believe, is called There's Always Something mm -hmm. to Do. And Peter Kandel was a Canadian value investor who was a fairly interesting personality in general. But one of the habits that I found particularly interesting is that in January, he would go to a market which performed the worst during the year prior. So he would go to all these places and we're talking about 1980s. So a lot of, for example, emerging market investing at the time was you had to go to India, for instance, and go physically to a, to a, to a government building, register as an agent with the Securities Commission, go through tons of paperwork and bureaucracy. So the kind of stuff that was, you know, it required a lot of time and effort. And the fact that he felt it was worthwhile because the returns on those kinds of investments would justify that, that investment of time, I thought was very interesting. So starting from Peter Kundal, I think I just started reading around and listening a bit more and talking to people. And that's how I kind of realized that perhaps value investing was, was the thing for me. Okay. Is it, um, many people have quoted kind of Peter as a influenced on their kind of journey to kind of value investing. Was there anybody else in particular that was kind of key for you in terms of that kind of reading? Was there anyone else that kind of sparked that um, light bulb moment? So I think it's, uh, it, it would make more sense to think of some big value investor who, you know, I read this big book and then nothing was ever the same again. But the truth is, I think when you're discovering something new, it's the it's the first couple of investors and books that you come across that really there the journey of discovery is the most significant because everything is new. All those things that they say to you, you just go, oh, wow, suddenly this makes so much sense. So for instance, there is a Spanish investor called uh, Francisco Garcia Paramés, who is perhaps more of a um, he, he's he's had different phases in his career, I believe, but he's more of a Warren Buffett type of value investor. So um, competitive modes and sensible management teams and not overpaying, but he doesn't necessarily go all the way into the deep value side of things. But he, I found out about him. I can't remember how, but uh, then I realized that he's just written a book. But the book at the time was only, he wrote it in Spanish in his native language and I had to wait, I can't remember, nine months or whatever for the English translation. And I speak English, obviously, and I speak some French. So I thought, well, how hard can it be? It's Spanish. <laughs> so I used to stay at work after hours with like Google Translate <laughs> open on my computer. And a lot of words in investing, uh, things like investment or management, obviously, are all easily translatable. But I basically, this was the first and so far the only book in Spanish that I'd ever read. <laughs> and and again, he was just talking about some of the the capital cycles uh, that that he that he kind of used as a foundation for his investment which to me was like a massive revelation and like oh suddenly this is an explanation that makes so much sense to me okay it's interesting and given what you was kind of saying about kind of the initial where you were talking about kind of peter you had to go to india register and so forth i mean <clears throat> that's probably one example how kind of value investments kind of changed over the last kind of 10 years you don't have to necessarily do that now is there any other kind of changes you've noticed over the last say 10 years in terms of how you approach value I mean, I'd say the the main change, and I've only been an investor for just over 10 years, so I can't vouch for how things were before, but it seemed to me that even when I just joined the industry, it was still a quest for more information. 
more information equals better decisions. So let's sign up to 20 expert networks and let's speak to everyone you could possibly speak to. And whilst I think that approach has some benefit to it, from everything that I can see around me now, the focus has become a lot more on filtering out the information and making some very clear decisions as to how much time you spend on something, how much reading do you want to do, this this concept of after you found out 80% of what you need to know, you probably already can make a decision. You can spend another two weeks on the remaining 20%, but the marginal value of that information is is not that high. You're only doing it for your own comfort so that you feel more psychologically more comfortable with making that decision. So I think I would probably say that that is the biggest shift in the last 10 years. Okay. And given, you know, value investing is about, you know, buying buying cheap stocks, um, and now there's an awful lot of, as you said, information or computer power or filters that kind of can easily do that work for you. You don't have to go through a, your own individual spreadsheets. You can press a button and this tells you this stocks are the, are the cheapest in, um, in whatever benchmark. How important is that extra work that you do from a kind of fundamental side to kind of check that? Because you are now competing against, I would say, just computers that can do that quicker and easier than most people can. So my my basic view on that, which is perhaps a little self-serving, is that any program, any computer, any algorithm all falls under the same camp of the output is only as good as the input. So all those programs are made by humans. Humans have biases, humans make errors. It, you will you will never write the perfect program that does everything perfectly. So there will still be bits of the market that it misses. And ultimately, unless we're talking about a fully computerized trading program, of which I, I believe there are loads, but in the end of the day, most people in the industry use it as a shortcut or use it as a starting point. And after the computer has, uh, let's say, filtered or screened things for you, in the end of the day, the decision is still yours. And starting from what kind of things you look for with the screen, which is why we are quite proud that our screen is very simple. It is just all we want is cheap as 20%. Once you start adding more metrics and more qualitative things, you're just you're just pre-screening already with your existing biases. So the things that the screen will give you, you're probably going to like because you've pre-selected them. So I think that the so long as the human judgment is in there somewhere in the decision-making process, it will always be flawed. The markets will always be inefficient to some degree. And therefore, an investor that's willing to work with their own biases and try to be as objective as possible, I think will always have a place to exist. Okay. And just focusing on that cheapest 20%, I mean, the, the cardinal sin of value investing is buying kind of value traps. What kind of work do you have to do to make sure you, you, you don't kind of get involved in that and maybe checking the underlying quality of the business? How important is that to avoid those kind of value traps? Um, I think ultimately the the checklist that we use as a team, for instance, is pretty simple. And there's been lots of studies statistically. The US stock market, for example, has 150 years of data to rely on in terms of things that um, that typically trip up value investments. So structural changes to to strong, uh, you know, the old example of nobody wants to buy the last manufacturer of horse carts when everybody's about to start driving a car or uh, financial strength of the business. So if, if the business is under pressure, but the management team are predominantly worried about being able to meet their interest costs, 
that's the kind of thing that means companies just go bust and never recover. So there are all those classical factors that you can use. For, for me personally, because I'm involved mainly in emerging markets investments, for me, the overall um, the the overall macro and political environment in which the companies operate makes a great difference. You can be the greatest company ever, but if you happen to be in the wrong geography, then macro political factors can just completely destroy you. And it doesn't have to mean that the company itself goes bust or um, or doesn't recover, but it can simply mean that you as a as an as a dollar investor, your return in local currency looks amazing. You look like a genius, but your dollar return is is completely suppressed by the by the currency returns. So for me, it's it's that awareness of the macro environment in which companies operate, and secondly, ideally some sort of a catalyst. And I think there is there is a lot of conversation even between and my co manager about this, because if the catalyst is obvious, then the market can already see the catalyst, and therefore it's probably in the price. But also, do you really feel comfortable with investing in something where you literally cannot imagine a scenario in which the underlying performance of the business improves? That seems to me an interesting call to make, but I think not necessarily, therefore, not not the existence of a catalyst in plain view, but I can imagine a scenario under which, say, the commodity price that influences this business goes up or something along those lines. Okay, you talked about emerging markets there and how you, you know, macro is probably a slightly more important part. Is, is there any other kind of changes you, you feel that you have to apply when looking at emerging markets for uh, with a value hat on compared to, say, looking at, you know, US equity or UK equity with a value hat on? I'm not sure I have a very good answer to that question in the sense that I've never really been an investor in the UK or US equities so I can't I can't speak from personal experience but I think I guess ultimately emerging markets are a risky asset class and you need to take that into account but I think an interesting theme that's emerging in the last couple of years and in some ways manifests itself in 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 ways that are terrible for for humankind but politics always plays a role when I speak sometimes to other developed market in investors, I feel that they've had a Goldilocks period for 20 years, 30 years, where, yes, of course, there was the GFC. Yes, of course, there were the occasional crises. But by and large, world trade was expanding. Geopolitics was helpful. It was relatively stable. So you could ignore politics and macroeconomics most of the time. And you could just say, I choose companies. I'm a bottom-up investor. That's the only thing I care about. And it was, therefore, the difference was more pronounced, where in EM, I think you could never truly ignore that. Even for a growth fund, you know, let's let's talk about, for instance, Coca-Cola FEMSA in Mexico, which for a very long time, Mexico has the highest consumption of fizzy drinks per capita in the world. It was a growing business. It was, I believe, commanding high multiples, good returns on capital, staple business, great brand power. But then the Mexican government got so concerned about the effects of this stuff on people's health that they slapped a sugar tax on it. I believe the first in the world at the time. So even as a growth investor, you picked an amazing company, but still political interference meant that the the shape of that business changed almost overnight. And so that was the way I think the world used to be seen. But now I would like to think that even, even my colleagues in the developed world are starting to ask themselves questions of, 
under which sort of circumstances can politics make or break this investment? How political is this particular industry? What are the greater the greater trends, the bigger picture trends? And I'm not saying all of us should become top-down investors, but just I think you no longer have the luxury of just closing your eyes and saying, this stuff doesn't matter in my market. Does that mean then as a value investor in emerging markets, you, you feel you've got a, a better opportunity set because all that will all that kind of political noise creates more opportunities. I think that the simple premise is emerging markets is less efficient as an asset class. There is more volatility. The information is less readily available. The accounting standards have not been harmonized. Most countries have their own. Most people have a home bias to some degree. All those faraway places seem strange and, and scary. I'll give you a, an example. When when I just joined the team, we were having a conversation about some of the Russian oil stocks. And this is what, five years ago or so. And we were looking at some risk scores. And I was talking to my colleagues who were saying, well, and then, then we added a couple more risk points, you know, for expropriation risk. It's like, okay, why, where, where does this come from? And we tried to calibrate the the number of risk points that they were adding to these companies for virtue, because of being Russian, versus statistical probability of assets being expropriated. And whilst expropriation is a a big news event and when it happens, everyone talks about it, in reality, there is a handful of cases in which it has happened. So as a team that prides itself in basing our decisions in statistics and base rates and probabilities, it seemed like a funny thing to me and, and a classic example of, oh, this looks like a place without rule of law, therefore there must be expropriation risk. But expropriation risk of 10% and expropriation risk of 0.1% are very different things. So it is my job to look past these kinds of biases and because emerging markets also, because of its inefficiency and, and other things, it is a more volatile asset class. I think we just get more opportunities and more frequently because things move more quickly than developed market investors, perhaps. Okay. Where do you believe the biggest misconception of value investing lies? I think there are plenty, <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll pick one. And certainly when it comes to emerging markets, when you talk about the fact that you run a deep value emerging markets fund, most people assume you just own commodity companies. And again, this is an interesting thing because that's really the phenomenon of the last 10 years. In 2008, 2009, 2010, commodity companies were all the rage. The biggest components of the EM index were Gazprom and Petrobras, uh, Vale and, and all the rest of it. And then after the super cycle ended and Chinese growth started declining, that's when they became like the the low quality bad companies that value investors own. And whilst uh, there is usually some some availability in the in the market segment if you want to buy some of these companies, all sorts of companies can become cheap over time and for reasons good and for reasons bad. And I feel very lucky in that emerging markets is such a massive universe with so many sectors and companies and countries that I don't have to just own indebted commodity companies. I can own pretty much whatever so long as I think that the valuation is compelling. Okay. One of the ones that we hear about a lot in terms of misconception of value, and it'll be interesting in terms of um, your take on it, would be value investing is not compatible with ESG. 
again, maybe because of that kind of commodity link. I know as, as a team, you've done a fair bit of work on that to prove that actually you can be a ESG investor and a value investor. The main problem with with most big picture arguments about ESG is nobody seems to be able to agree on what that means. And I think before we have a clear definition, and I believe the UK regulator, the European regulators are kind of working on it. But before you know what it what it is, it means different things to different people. I think it's it's no surprise to anyone, but if you want to invest in EM, the G side of things has always been incredibly important. You have to mind things like management teams that are linked to the government, et cetera, et cetera. So for us, some of these things have always been part of the game. And in that regard, there is there is nothing new. And let's pick the social part of ESG. Again, you're dealing with mining companies, mining companies most of the time, mine in places not next to big cities, where there are, for example, indigenous communities. Those disputes have been part of the picture for you as an EM investor for forever. So I think there is nothing that makes it inherently incompatible, but that argument is always difficult to have unless we settle on the definition first. Okay. And looking forward, I mean, how bright do you think the future is for value investing as we sit here today? I mean, I'd like to think it's very bright, of course, I think investment styles go in and out of fashion, and that's absolutely fine. And also it depends on the macroeconomic trends. I, I don't necessarily think that one investment philosophy is the king of it all and should work in every environment in every day of the week. I think value is a conservative way to invest because you are buying more or less, to, to simplify it massively, but you're buying an existing asset base, not the promises of an asset base in five years' time. And I think it will always have a place. It, it's got regular, rigorous analysis behind it. It's got years of data that suggest that most of the time it allows you to outperform the market. And so it makes sense. And given where the valuations are today, it's it's likely, it seems likely that the the returns from here should be should be pretty impressive. But the world is uh, is an unexpected place, so I guess we'll see. Okay, so so far no regrets about leaving a growth house and joining a value team. Oh, no, absolutely not. And I enjoyed growth investing, but as a as an observant, I, I think, and uh, as an observer, whilst value investing is something that I I love doing every day. So yeah, happy. Okay, great, Vera. Thanks very much for answering my questions. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>